Thanks, Carrie. I want the record to show that Carrie's employment is safe. Uh, we have all forgotten the start of a service, Carrie, so no worries. That's the best time to do it. You're still like, I don't know what's going on here. I just started. Um, <clears throat> do you have a Bible you want to open it up to Acts chapter 2? We are going to continue forward, taking 12 weeks in the book of Acts. Acts 2, 1 through 41 is what we're going to work with this morning. So you can open up your Bible, get settled there. If you were present at the Fritzen house at bedtime, which admittedly would be a weird time for you to be present at the Fritzen house, but should you be there, you would see like the same sort of song and dance routine from me like three or four nights a week. And that is, we've gotten ready for bed. We've laid down. I realize I need to charge my phone. I reach down to grab like the cord and it's not there. It's because I moved the charger earlier in the day to some other room in the house. So I get up in the dark. I go and I find it. And then I come back in and I don't want to flip a light on or even the flashlight on my cell phone because I don't want to bother Melody. But the charger itself, like the outlet itself is behind the bed and really it's behind the bed frame and there's just enough room between the wall and the bed frame that you can fit like the little charging cube for an iPhone. You got to like wiggle it in there sideways and then, but I'm doing this in the dark so I know generally where the outlet is. So I'm on the bed and I'm just like scraping the chart, the socket thing along the wall, hoping to find where the outlet is when one of the little tines will like kind of find the edge. And then I know I finally made it and I can plug it in. And that's where the power is, right? So I'm like, I just need to find it. I don't even want to like get in the awkward angle that you have to get into to see it. So I just scrape it along the wall until it's finally plugged in and I can charge my phone. I know it's there in that general area. I know that it's accessible, a general sense of where it is. I know that I need that power in order to be able to charge my phone, but mostly I'm just kind of like scraping around, flailing around in the dark, trying to figure out exactly where it is. I think most of us, if we're honest, have somewhat of a similar sense or relationship to the Holy Spirit. We know that he has power, and we know that we need that power to live faithfully. We have probably a general, though foggy, sense of who he is, what his role is, and how he works. We more or less understand that he's present with us and available to us at all times. And yet, here we are, just kind of like stabbing around in the dark, hoping that at a certain point, we like find the access to the power and everything kind of starts to flow. Just hoping for the best, if you will. J.C. Ryle says it this way. He says that the place the Holy Spirit holds in the minds of most professing Christians bears no proportion to the place which he holds in the word. He goes on to say, I believe that few truths of Christianity are so often obscured and spoiled by false doctrines as those concerning the Holy Spirit. It is impossible to walk through the book of Acts and do justice to the book and its implications in the life of the church and the life of followers of Jesus and not deal very squarely with the Holy Spirit. Acts provides for us not so much a how-to book as it relates to the Holy Spirit, but this descriptive view into the powerful work that the Holy Spirit can and does do through followers of Jesus who are humbly submitted to the rule and the reign of Christ. And I want to lay some cards on the table as we jump into this because for the next nine weeks or so, we're going to work through the book of Acts, the high points in the book of Acts, and we're going to have to be able to deal well with the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit in the midst of the early days of the church. And oftentimes, within just about every theological strain, the book of Acts becomes a place for proof texting our theological camp's views about the Holy Spirit rather than being this beautiful narrative about the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish the will of the Father to proclaim the Son to all the nations of the earth. 
We go to Acts not to see the power of who the Holy Spirit is. We go to Acts and use it to proof text, this is what I think about the Holy Spirit. And our aim throughout this series is going to be to take what's in front of us in the narrative descriptions of of, uh, the early church that Luke provides to us in Acts, and we're going to make observations about the Holy Spirit without feeling like we need to pigeonhole those into one particular theological construct. My commitment, as is always my goal, is to be as expressly biblical as possible. Now, that has to come with an admission. Like I have my own lenses and filters through which I read all of Scripture and through which I look at the book of Acts. And so I have, running in the background of my own heart and mind, what it is that I believe about the Holy Spirit. And I have to allow the truth of God's word to nudge those into more and more biblical spaces, just like anybody else within our church. But the goal is to be as expressly biblical as possible without feeling the need to fall smoothly within modern day theological boundaries. Like we are this kind of church, so we have to believe these kinds of things about who the Holy Spirit is and how he works. I want to avoid that. But that being the case, it means that odds are over the next nine or 10 weeks, something Holy Spirit related is probably going to feel uncomfortable to you. I'm going to say something and some of you are gonna say like, ah, it's a little too spirity for me. Like, that's not comfortable. Or at other times I'm going to say something and you're gonna think, ah, he's putting God in a box. Why would he do that? But my commitment is, I want to be as like aggressively biblical as is possible, not aggressive in like the presentation, but I want to hold to the exact confines that the Bible gives us, not that modern day theological belief systems give us. Now the challenge of that in the book of Acts is to allow the descriptive portions of Acts to be descriptive to make accurate observations in the midst of those descriptions, to take those observations and place them in the context of the entire Bible's teaching about the Holy Spirit and then resist the urge to do one of two things, overstretch those things or disregard them entirely. We want to say what the passage says and nothing more, but we also want to say what the passage says and not ignore something that it says. So we're going to try to do that as best we can over the next nine weeks or so. And all of that Holy Spirit-type conversation within the narrative of Acts stomps on the gas in Acts chapter 2. It's Pentecost. That's where our passage is from today. And as our reading plan highlighted throughout the course of the week, if you're following along with that, we tried to highlight via passages in the Old Testament that Pentecost is not the first time that the Holy Spirit is present or talked about within the Bible. Just as the Son, Jesus, did not come into existence at his birth, so too the Holy Spirit does not come into being at Pentecost. The Son has always existed. The Holy Spirit has always existed. The Father has always existed. But the Holy Spirit does burst onto the scene in a new way within the life of the followers of Jesus in Acts chapter 2. And so here's the the plan this morning. We're going to take this rather long passage in three different chunks. Read a chunk, kind of step, step back, make some observations. Read the next chunk, step back, make some observations. Not just about the Holy Spirit, but about the account in general. And the aim this morning is not to be exhaustive on all the truths related to the Holy Spirit. That's not possible in one sermon. But we do want to be clear with what we're seeing in this particular account. And then at the end, I'm going to try to put everything together into one sort of concrete, rock solid, you can grab hold of this truth about the Holy Spirit in any and all circumstances, in any and all seasons of life. That's where we're headed. Sound good? Let's pray and then we'll read. God, thank you for this morning. God, I pray that your word would speak clearly. God, I pray that the Holy Spirit present here among us would open the eyes of our hearts and our minds that we might see the truth of who you are, how you work. God, I pray that You would illuminate truth for us this morning, mold us into the image of your son that we might magnify and glorify and declare the greatness of the gospel all of our days 
to the ends of the earth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're gonna start with verses one through 13. This is Acts chapter two, beginning in verse one. It says this. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one of them heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each one of us can hear them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea, in Cappadocia, Pontus, in Asia, Phrygia, in Pamphylia, Egypt, in in the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But some sneered and said, they're drunk on new wine. I'm just going to start in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Now we should take the word they to mean the disciples, the apostles, and the other close followers of Jesus' ministry who are mentioned in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. But we do find out a little bit later that there are some other Jewish individuals present in Jerusalem, which we'll talk more about in a minute. And they're gathered together on Pentecost. Pentecost means 50. It's 50 days after Jesus was crucified. That's when this takes place. Now, Jesus was crucified at the Passover. Now we're seven weeks and a day later. And there are two very large ties to the Jewish calendar in all of this. Jesus was crucified on the Passover. And as such, he's the fulfillment of all the Passover lambs that the Israelite people had been offering for generations since they were brought out of slavery in Egypt. So year after year after year, the Israelite people gather at Passover and they sacrifice their lambs as a way to remember God's saving act to rescue them from slavery. At Jesus' crucifixion, which happens on Passover... underscores the fact that he is what all those Passover lambs were pointing to. He is the one through which we are saved. On the Jewish calendar, seven weeks after Passover, there was another festival. It's known as the the, the Feast of Harvests or the Feast of Weeks. It's also known as the Feast of Gatherings. Three names, one festival. Israelite people would gather in Jerusalem once again for like an Old Testament Jewish sort of thanksgiving. Now we're celebrating God's provision for us in the harvest. Seven weeks after the Passover, where they celebrate God saving them, they would gather together again in order to celebrate God providing for them. And so here in Acts chapter 2, as Jewish men and women are once again gathered in Jerusalem, what does God do? Provides the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes fills these followers of Jesus and he provides for his people in the most wonderful of ways with his presence among them. So Israel gathers to celebrate Passover, God's salvation, and Jesus is crucified. Israel gathers seven weeks later to celebrate God's provision in the Feast of the Harvests and the Holy Spirit is provided. At Passover, the son was given for their salvation. At the Feast of the Harvest, the Holy Spirit is given to them as provision. See the genius of God's providence and wisdom and the timing of those events. That's intentional. Now look at what happens on this day. Verse 2. Suddenly, a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. First observation. That word suddenly is important. The disciples are gathered together, waiting like they were told to. Wait in Jerusalem and you will receive power from on high. They're being faithful and obedient to Jesus and waiting. And then bang, there's the Holy Spirit. Sound of violent rushing wind. And the Holy Spirit arrives 
freely and powerfully as the third person of the Godhead. That's observation number one. Freely and powerfully, the Holy Spirit fills this place. They wait in Jerusalem, obedient to what Jesus said. He sends the Holy Spirit faithful to what he promised. Now, we would be wrong to stretch this beyond what we see. The Holy Spirit works and is powerful when the people of God obey, but the obedience of God's people does not constrain the Holy Spirit to act in a certain way. We don't manipulate what the Holy Spirit does by our obedience. He's free to move in power when and where he pleases. Nonetheless, it's worth pointing out that the disciples obey, and in the midst of their obedience, Jesus is faithful to do what he said he would do. We just shouldn't make that some sort of like linear, forever and always kind of prescription. I think all of us can probably name plenty of times in our lives where we were obedient, and the Holy Spirit didn't move in the way that we hoped it would. I also think we can look at the world around us, our own history as followers of Jesus, or we can look at church history and we can see plenty of evidences for the fact that there are times when followers of Jesus were used powerfully by the Holy Spirit and yet we come to find out later that they were maybe walking in like secret sin or they were being disobedient in places and yet the Holy Spirit still moved powerfully. He's free, moves in power according to the sovereign will of God. John Piper says it this way, the Holy Spirit is not bound to anyone's timing or technique for how to get his power. We are to bank on his daily indwelling presence and grace, walk in the obedience of faith, and pray daily for the outpouring of power from on high, but we cannot make the Holy Spirit come. When he does, he comes freely and suddenly. He will never become someone's bellhop. He loves and he serves, but he keeps his own hours and knows what is best for us. Another important piece of this, the Holy Spirit arrives freely and powerfully as the third person of the Godhead. I actually used the opening illustration that I did in order to address what I think is a common misconception about the Holy Spirit, that it's some sort of like disembodied power, like the socket in the wall. Like if you just could get plugged in, then the power sort of disembodied and like abstract would just kind of flow and then when you found the outlet again, it would flow another time. No, the Holy Spirit is a person, co-eternal, always existent, co-majestic with the Father and the Son. This is the power of a person. Like when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're talking about the third member of the Trinity, not some disembodied power that comes and goes as it pleases. A.B. Simpson, who's the founder of the Christian, Minis, uh, the Christian Missionary Alliance, the CMA denomination, says this, the power of the Holy Spirit is not your power, but his power. It is not abstract power under your control, but it is a person whose presence is with you. He has the power, you have him. That's the beauty of the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's keep going. Suddenly... He arrives freely and powerfully. A sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Observation number two is that the Holy Spirit is the presence of God among God's people. You say, well, how do you make that observation from those two verses? Well, there's something very powerful that's happening here. There's actually a play on words in the first place in the description of the Holy Spirit's arrival. Now, that's not to say that these evidences of the wind and the fire did not take place. It's simply to say that God does something very intentional in the way the Holy Spirit moves into this house and fills these early believers. Luke captures it. Now that play on words is that the Greek word for spirit is the word pneuma. It's where we get the word pneumatology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit. That Greek word pneuma also means, can be translated as wind or breath. The Old Testament Hebrew word for spirit is the word ruah. It can also be translated and is translated in the Old Testament as wind and breath. In fact, in the Old Testament, the breath of God is associated with the life-giving spirit of God. Think about the creation narrative. When God breathes life, ruah, into Adam. So when the Holy Spirit, pneuma, ruah, Greek, Hebrew, arrives, one of the accompanying signs that God provides is the sound of wind. 
Why? Well, because this is a room full of Jewish individuals who would have made that association immediately. This is God's spirit here. There are also these tongues of fire. Again, why? Well, in the Old Testament, what's the visible presence of God marked by? It's marked by fire. It's not Moses in the dripping wet bush. It's Moses and the burning bush. It's on fire. After they're rescued from Egypt and they're moving across the wilderness, what leads the Israelites at night? A pillar of fire. That's the presence of God. God's arrival at the temple that Solomon builds in 2 Samuel. He arrives in smoke and fire fills the Holy of Holies. When Elijah goes up onto the mountain with the prophets of Baal and they both build an altar to offer a sacrifice to their gods and the prophets of Baal are slashing themselves with swords and calling out to Baal and nothing happens and Elijah steps forward and he calls on Yahweh. What comes down and licks up the offering? Fire. It's the presence of God. In the Old Testament, fire was a common evidence or attestation to the presence of God. And so both of these pieces, violent rushing wind, tongues of fire, are screaming to this room full of Jewish men and women that the presence of God in the person of the Spirit is there with them. He moves freely and powerfully, And it's the presence of God among God's people. Now, it's important to note, the Holy Spirit is neither of these things. The Holy Spirit is not the fire. The Holy Spirit is not the wind. They just give evidence to his presence. It would also be overstretching to say that when the Holy Spirit comes and fills people, that there need to be these exact two sorts of external signs. Well, the Holy Spirit's not present if there's not wind and fire. That would be taking a descriptive thing and trying to make it prescriptive. That's what we want to avoid in the book of Acts. But there are still today visible evidences of the proof of God's presence dwelling among his people. Look at verse four. We're making great progress. There's only 37 verses left. All right. (laughs) Then when they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, they began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So observation number three, the Holy Spirit equips God's people with spiritual gifts. Now in Acts 2, That visible gift is the gift of tongues. We're told that there are people present from a whole host of places. If you look down in verse 8 all the way through like verse 11, there are 15 different geographical people group representations given in that chunk. People from places that would represent modern day Iran, Syria, Turkey, Egypt, Rome. All around the Mediterranean, Faithful Jewish men and women have come to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. There's a group of people, we'll say 15 to 20, inside a house. The 12 apostles, because Judas has been replaced, plus some other close followers of Jesus' ministry. The Holy Spirit arrives in that house. Wind, fire, freely, suddenly. The presence of God is dwelling there among God's people. And they start speaking. Now, there are people outside the house. We talked about what these houses looked like, that they had these courtyards that you could see into from the street. So Jerusalem is filled with people for the feast, and all of a sudden, they can hear people speaking to them in their native language, and that draws a crowd. And they're all amazed at what's happening because what they're hearing in their native language are the magnificent acts of God. That's what verse 11 tells us. Now, everybody's looking into the house, and the amazing thing is those are all Galileans. And they don't speak our language. How's this possible? What's going on? We're told in verse 12, some people are amazed and they're like, what does this mean? Whereas some other people are like, ah, don't worry about it. They're drunk. No one can figure out exactly what's happening. Everyone knows that something incredible is taking place though. Galileans don't speak Egyptian. They don't speak the languages of Asia Minor. This is what we call today tongues people speaking in foreign languages that were previously unknown to them. Now, there isn't time for a deep dive on tongues. You can take all of your questions about tongues, put them into an email, and send that email to khuber at lcfliberty.org. He will be happy to answer all of them. He's not even here today, so just load up his inbox and let him handle it. There's not time to deep dive tongues, but it's worth saying that there are other times in the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit moves or fills people, the word is used, fills, 
and they don't speak in tongues. Now, therefore, it would be a stretch to say that it's normative and necessary for any follower of Jesus who's actually been sealed by the Holy Spirit to speak in tongues. That is stretching beyond what Acts or the New Testament says to us. That being said, the Holy Spirit does still empower the people of God with gifts. And he empowers them with gifts for the same reason that these initial followers of Jesus speak in tongues. In order that we might give evidence to his presence and his power, in order that we might give witness to him and worship him. Spiritual gifts are given by the Holy Spirit to encourage the body, to build up the body, to mobilize the body toward mission and worship and to expand the kingdom. So all that's happening in the house. People are gathering and watching this take place. They're astounded and perplexed. Some are saying, what does this mean? This is amazing. Some are sneering. These people are drunk. Verse 14, Peter stands up. Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and proclaimed to them, fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. And pay attention to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy." I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay." You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to, be, to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience de decay. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended to the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus who you crucified, Messiah and Lord. Note, the Peter who steps forward to give this sermon is the same Peter who 50 days before in the same city did not even want to be associated with Jesus. You're one of the Galileans who's traveling with Jesus. Jesus, I don't know the man. I've never heard of him. Like he wants nothing to do with him. Now, with a crowd that is at least 3,000 people, because that's how many are added to their number in verse 41, at least 3,000 people are there. They're trying to figure out what's going on. Peter steps forward and says, let me tell you about Jesus. Like an incredible thing has happened by the power of the Holy Spirit here. A man who was willing to deny Jesus 50 days ago is now willing to profess Jesus in one of the most powerful of ways. And he does so by giving this sermon. He does two things in the sermon. The first one is this. It's our next observation. The Holy Spirit fills God's people as the fulfillment of both Old Testament and New Testament promise. Peter knows what is going on. That's why he says, let me explain this to you. Pay attention. What does this mean? They're drunk on wine. No, let me explain, Peter says. And he knows what's going on. He has incredible clarity about it because Jesus told his followers that this would happen. You can jot this down in your notes if you're a note taker. 
If you wanna see what Jesus has to teach about the Holy Spirit, go read John chapter 16. I'll give you the highlights. Jesus says, I will send to you from the Father the Spirit of truth. He will testify about me. He goes on to say, it is for your benefit that I go away because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. He also says that when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Jesus says, the spirit will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. And so Peter knows what's happening. He steps forward and he says, let me explain this to you. And then he puts the event that's taking place in the house in the context of Jewish history and prophecy so that those who didn't hear Jesus's promise would understand. And he quotes from Joel chapter two. That's verses 17 through 21. I'm not gonna work all the way through the prophecy, but the high points are that Peter steps forward and he says, there's a day coming. Joel told us there's a new era. These last days will come. And when that era arrives, the spirit will be poured out on all people. Sons, daughters, young men, old men, women, men. Everyone will have the presence of God among them. The Holy Spirit will come and dwell within all God's people in a permanent way. Peter is saying to these Jewish men and women from around the world, this should not be a total shock. God told us this would happen. Read your Bible. What you're seeing is the fulfillment of a promise that God made to us through the prophet Joel. Our observation or takeaway ought to be the Holy Spirit's not something that just sort of comes about in Acts chapter two. He's co-eternal, equally glorious. He's the third person of the Trinity, present in eternity, promised in the Old Testament, sent by Jesus, and now present with his people. He's the fulfillment of both Old Testament and New Testament promise. Then look in verse 22. Where does Peter turn his attention? Fellow Israelites, listen to these words, and he tells them all about Jesus of Nazareth, attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs, delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, crucified by lawless people, he says, killed, and then raised from the dead because it was not possible for him to be held by death. So what's our next observation? Well, the Holy Spirit works to magnify the Son. Like the Holy Spirit comes Freely and powerfully, the presence of God among God's people equips them with gifts. It's the fulfillment of Old Testament and New Testament promise. And what is the thing that's happening? We're magnifying Jesus. Let me tell you all about Jesus. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, Peter makes the gospel explicit. You saw the ministry, all the wonders and signs. It was God's predetermined plan that Jesus needed to die. He used lawless men, Peter says, to have him nailed to the cross where he died, but then he raised him from the dead. And then he quotes from Psalm 16. That starts in verse 25. And that runs all the way down through what you have as verse 28. As if to say again, the Old Testament told us that this was the way it was going to happen. And then he says in verse 29, I can tell you confidently, David, who wrote that Psalm, isn't the one it's about because he's dead and buried. We can go to his tomb were there. He was a prophet. He knew this was about one of his descendants. Verse 32, God has raised this Jesus, and we're all witnesses of this. He's been exalted to the right hand of God, right? That's the ascension. Received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured it out, and that's what you see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens. Verse 36, where has he landed? Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, Lord and Messiah. Here's the Savior. There's a bonus observation here. This one's not on the screens. The Holy Spirit works in fulfillment of, in confirmation of, and in accordance to Scripture. We cannot attribute to the Holy Spirit work that contradicts Scripture. The Holy Spirit fills these believers in fulfillment of scripture, and then he moves Peter to magnify Jesus on the basis of scripture. That's what Peter starts to quote for everyone that's there listening. And then notice the results, verse 37. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart 
Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will come and he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. They're pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, this is one of the great lobbed softballs in all of the Bible. Brothers, what should we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, each of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as our Lord and God will call. With many other words, so his sermon might have been as long as this one, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 were added to them. Observation number six, I think. The Holy Spirit empowers God's people for the accomplishment of God's will. Step back and what is God's will? We don't need to make that some sort of ethereal, mysterious thing. God tells us in scripture, his will is that he's going to bless all the nations of the earth through the descendants of Abraham. Here's Jesus, the descendant of Abraham, and now all the nations of the earth will be blessed through this man. He will be proclaimed among every tribe, nation, and tongue. The apostles will talk about Jesus starting in Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. A people will be gathered to God from every tribe, nation, and tongue. That's going to happen and the Holy Spirit empowers God's people for the accomplishment of that mission. You get the rumblings of that right out of the gate at Pentecost. In fact, Luke underscored it for you. In the long list of nations that were present, he said visitors from Rome, this is verse 10, both Jews and converts. Those aren't converts to Christianity. Those are Gentiles who are what Old Testament Jews called God-fearers. Gentile believers, they're not native Israelite people who worship Yahweh. And so right out of the gate at Pentecost, what happens? God's working to fulfill his purpose to glorify himself among all the peoples of the earth, Jew, non-Jew. That's what the Holy Spirit does. We get the rumblings of that right when he comes at Pentecost. John Piper, again, says this, the whole reason for this incredible power that courses through followers of Jesus, thanks to the presence of the Holy Spirit, is that the task of proclaiming the glory of the King to the ends of the earth isn't done. Final observation. We're told that 3,000 are added to their number. The Holy Spirit moves God's people to worship and obedience. We'll look more specifically at this next week, but in Acts 42 to 47, you get a description of life in the early church. Why? Because these 3,000 are added to that. And worship and obedience is what takes place within the context of the local church. If the Son is truly being magnified, then worship and obedience will be the result. Now, we shouldn't allow ourselves to stretch this point beyond what it says. Because it's not true that when the Holy Spirit moves or fills people, that there must be a certain number of people who are saved. There are weeks here in our sanctuary, when the Holy Spirit is moving powerfully, but as far as we know, there are no new salvations. Jesus is praised, the gospel is preached according to scripture, gifts are being used, they're on display, the kingdom advances through God's people, but no one is saved. But that's the Holy Spirit's kind of work. Present among God's people, moving freely and powerfully according to his will, empowering the church with gifts in order to magnify Jesus. So we take all of that and we sort of step back and I'm going to give you one phrase said two ways. Where Jesus is magnified, the Holy Spirit is at work. Now you could flip that statement around the other way and it's just as true. Where the Holy Spirit is at work, Jesus is magnified. So all the stuff about the Holy Spirit and the uncertainty that we have, that is a rock-solid guarantee. Where Jesus is magnified, that's the Holy Spirit working. Where the Holy Spirit is working, what will the evidence be? The evidence will be Jesus is magnified. You can be certain of that. 
This is one of the most beautiful and powerful narratives about the Holy Spirit in all of Scripture. And the result is one thing and one thing only. Therefore, Peter says, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, Lord and Messiah. So often when we think about this passage, we think verses 1 through 12. Holy Spirit comes, apostles speaking in tongues, 3,000 people added to their number. And we skip the whole middle part where Peter steps forward and says, let me explain this to you. And his explanation is Jesus. Like that's the explanation that he gives. And where the Holy Spirit is magnified, or where Jesus is magnified, the Holy Spirit is at work. Where the Holy Spirit is at work, Jesus is magnified. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus was the main thing. And through the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church, Jesus is the main thing. That's why Luke can make the implication at the start of the book of Acts that his whole second work here is all about what Jesus is continuing to do and to teach. The first one is all about what Jesus began to do and to teach. This one is all about what he continues to do and to teach. If you're someone who's going to pass out communion, will you come grab these trays and start to distribute the elements out? Now, I'm going to take like seven more minutes So as these are being distributed, try to do a little bit of like double duty. Don't fumble the tray and spill the juice everywhere, but also keep listening and keep following with me. I want to draw some implications of this that I think are important for the church today. When what you end up with primarily is the magnification of a person, that isn't the Holy Spirit. When the person who exercised the gift becomes the focus, something's off. Something's off in the heart of the person or something's off in the heart of those who are watching. When what we do is magnify the person who led the worship or the person who gave the teaching or the person who hosted the event or the person who prayed for the healing, when that becomes the focus, something's not right. When what you end up with is the pursuit of a feeling, that's not the Holy Spirit. There's a particular sort of strain of charismatic Pentecostalism, for lack of a better phrase, whereby the presence of the Spirit has to include some kind of like energy or like hype or like ecstasy that comes in the middle of the worship service. And we build the whole worship service around the pursuit of that feeling. And when we have the feeling, then we'll know the Spirit's there. Not true. Not true. That isn't to say that when the Holy Spirit moves in power, there aren't feelings and emotions tied to it. One of the things that the Holy Spirit does within the life of a believer is that he stirs our affections. But when the Spirit magnifies Jesus, the corresponding feelings could be any range of things. There could absolutely be excitement or energy or like a a sort of like frenetic kind of joy that takes place in a worship service. That could absolutely be the case. But when the Holy Spirit magnifies Jesus, there could also be deep conviction of sin, grief, sorrow, and lament. Where the Holy Spirit magnifies Jesus, there could be deep feelings of comfort or peace. There could be delight and joy. But we don't chase the emotion. We pray for the movement of the Spirit. We long for the glorification of the Son. I am rather certain because I'm human that at some point that night or the next day after the events of Acts chapter 2, the 12 apostles and the other close followers of Jesus looked around at each other and they're like, what in the world just happened? Like, that was amazing. But notice what they don't do in the rest of the book of Acts. They don't run around trying to recreate the thing that happened in the house. They don't go to another city and say, what we really need to do is recreate the tongues thing and then we'll know that the Holy Spirit is still here. They don't do that. They pursue the glorification of the Son thanks to the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit that Jesus might be magnified to the ends of the earth. And they allow the Spirit to work freely and powerfully as the Spirit will. When what you end up with is the relishing of an experience, That's not the spirit. Think like students at summer camp or some big event that you went to or like some sort of retreat 
so often it's easy for our heart to chase the experience. We long for the event again. What we ought to be longing for is the spirit who moved powerfully that Jesus might be magnified. So often this manifests itself as saying like, well, there need to be a certain number of songs. Then there's like room for the spirit. I I don't know that there was any singing in the house where the spirit first moved this way. Or we say we need to get the lights down to a certain level. Then there's room for the Holy Spirit to work. It needs to be at a certain venue. A certain person needs to be speaking. Then the Holy Spirit will come. Look, he doesn't need that event or a particular setting or low lights or certain songs or particular venues. He's free and powerful as the third person of the Godhead to move when and where he chooses to magnify Jesus. That's who he is and what he does. When what you end up with is the promotion of an organization, a particular church, that's not the spirit. Look, our human flesh wants to cling to those things, a particular memory, a particular person who did a particular thing, an organization, an event, certain setting, but what following Jesus looks like is faithful obedience that prays for regular moves or fresh fillings of the Holy Spirit so that Jesus might be magnified in us, through us, around us, and to the ends of the earth. What we want is the big, bold thing, okay? Like, we want to be like Clark Griswold out in our front yard, one plug in each hand. And we go, and like, everything explodes, erupts into light. We, we like crash the power grid and there are sparks flying. We say, ah, that was the Holy Spirit. Oh, there he finally is. And I'll just keep cramming plugs together until I find that thing again. And then there's the Holy Spirit. Yeah, maybe. Or maybe you just created a cool event and you got your emotions whipped up. Was Jesus magnified? Then maybe the Holy Spirit was at work. Was the event magnified? Was the person magnified? It was probably just a cool event and we can move on. But so often the movement of the Holy Spirit happens in very, very granular kinds of things. You sit down at your dining room table on a Wednesday morning and you open up scripture and Jesus leaps off the page to you. There was the Holy Spirit magnifying the sun. You have a conversation with a close friend or with your small group and your soul is stirred and your affections for Jesus grow. There was the Holy Spirit present in your conversation. You're in a season of deep grief or deep pain and you can't really explain it, but there's this tangible presence of the Lord with you. There's the Holy Spirit working in that moment. You've got conviction of sin, growth in holiness. There's the Holy Spirit you get this fervent longing to pray for something. There's the Holy Spirit. Lost people break your heart and you're emboldened to share the truth of the gospel. There's the Holy Spirit. You've got big faith in, a difficult, in the midst of a difficult situation. There's the Holy Spirit. And to the detriment of our own souls, we look at those kinds of things and we just kind of say like, oh, ho-hum, ho-hum, that was a normal day. Yeah, that was a normal day when you're filled with the Holy Spirit and he works and surges through you to magnify the sun. There's no such thing as a boring day. That's the work of the Holy Spirit dwelling among the people of God, moving freely and powerfully and empowering us to magnify the sun. And sometimes that happens in you, sometimes that happens through you, sometimes that happens around you, but that's always his work. That's what he does. And while we're sort of like flailing around for the power outlet, trying to figure out where the power is, the Holy Spirit's doing what the Holy Spirit does. It's magnifying Jesus in you, around you, through you, to the ends of the earth for the glory of the Son, at the will of the Father. Amen? Amen. And so a couple weeks every month, we put in your hands two elements. Why? So that we can get in front of us the work of the Son. Body broken, blood poured out. We can give each other some space and some time, whether that be as families or here at the end of the sermon, whereby we just stop and we pause and we allow the Holy Spirit to re-energize us with the beauty of this. A Savior, Jesus Christ, whom God raised from the dead.
Messiah and Lord. And we allow the Holy Spirit to do Christ-magnifying work in us that as we go from here, we might be reminded that he's doing Christ-magnifying work through us. Amen? So brothers and sisters, this is the body of Christ, broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of him. And this is the blood of Christ, poured out for you, washing you clean, white as snow, presenting you faultless before a holy and a righteous God. Drink in remembrance of him. Oh, God, we pray. God, we pray that your spirit would fill your people Move freely and powerfully. Empower us with gifts that in and through this church and through the church and in and through the individuals in this room, Christ might be magnified to the ends of the earth for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can stand up, let's sing. That's what the Holy Spirit is always proclaiming. This is who Jesus is. And to put it, directly back into the words of Peter. Who is he? This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him just as you yourselves know. He was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. He's nailed to a cross and killed and God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Therefore, let all the house of Israel, let all the nations of the earth know with certainty that God has made this man Jesus, whom you crucified, Lord and Messiah. That's who he is. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Lord, would you fill us? God, would you move powerfully among us? God, would you empower and equip your people in this church and in the church that we might magnify Jesus according to the will of God among all the nations of the earth. God, would you magnify Jesus in us? Would you magnify Jesus through us? Would you magnify Jesus around us? God, we pray that what we would seek and strive after is obedient following of Jesus lived in the power of the Spirit that the gospel might be made known. Lord, we pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Thanks for being here this morning. It was a joy to worship with you. Have a great week. Be blessed.